A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the second series of Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canon Gate, three independent publishers. In each episode, we'll hear from a different author and learn about the books that are closest to their hearts, their latest projects and their local indie bookshop. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and recorded remotely in line with current restrictions. Hello and welcome back to another Read Like a Writer. Once again, and I feel this is becoming a series two catchphrase, um, we are recording from our homes in line with current pandemic restrictions, so please do excuse any random ambient noise. With me, via the miracle of Squadcast software, is Leonie Ross, who will be talking about her book choices and her latest novel, This One Sky Day. Leonie's first book, All the Blood is Red, was published in 1996 and longlisted for the Orange Prize the following year. She went on to write another novel, Orange Laughter, and a short story com- She went on to write another novel, Orange Laughter, and a short story collection, Come Let Us Sing Anyway. She's worked as a journalist across print and broadcast, including a stint as the arts editor for The Voice. She's also taught creative writing at university level for nearly 20 years. So, This One Sky Day is a book full of sex and love and food and magic. I thought it was delicious, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Can you tell me a bit about it, Leonie? Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Um, uh, I will say this, I've been writing this book for a very long time. As you might know, I've been writing it on and off for 15 years. So I, I'm, I'm still finding ways to talk about it that, that, um, that are both articulate and succinct, but also um, uh, there are bits that I've taken out that I thought may, might make the final cut, and, but they're no longer in there. So I found myself a couple of weeks back talking to somebody about a scene that no longer exists. It's included. So I'm hoping not to do that today. You can stop me if I do. Anyway, um, yes, I suppose uh, at its heart, it is a love story. It tells that it goes across one day. It tells the story of um, our protagonist, our male protagonist is Xavier Redshoes, and he is a magic chef and he is also called a Messinas which means that he has a duty to cook the perfect meal for every single um, citizen of Poppy Show, which is the fictional archipelago where everybody lives. Um, and uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is his mission and also his responsibility to nurture his community in that way. And the day that we meet him, and as I said, this goes across one day, Xavier is really pissed off because he has been forced by a corrupt governor to um, cook a the most romantic meal in the world for the governor's daughter who's getting married. And he is annoyed because that's not the way it works. As he keeps grumbling all the way through the book, 
you don't skip my line. You know, he, he, he believes that people naturally and organically arrive at his restaurant in, in a time that is randomized and is supposed to be instinctive. Anyway, off he goes to collect these foods because he has to for various reasons. So we see him walking across the island and on the other end of the island is a woman called Anise, who he used to know. And to my mind, this is talking about, you know, that idea of the one who got away. Oh, People yeah. usually perk up for that one. Now, we don't <laughs> know whether actually the one that got away because it wasn't the right timing, usually, or maybe they were married to someone else or whatever. We don't know whether we would have worked with that person, but we still all, everyone I put that to, smiles ruefully. <laughs> and I can see you smiling ruefully now. Um, at, yes, the one that got away. And she is the one that got away for him. And really, he is the one that got away from her. And she... Uh, is also walking across the island for her own reasons. She has marital problems. Lots of other th weird things happen as we proceed, as you know, but that's a kind of start, perhaps an introduction to the space. It's really rich. I mean, you can tell there's a whole kind of complete world, society, economy, political system there without it ever feeling... Uh, I think sometimes... Uh, your book is very much magical realism, not fantasy. But I think sometimes in fantasy world building, you get these like terrible expositions where people like explain how long the coins have been in circulation. Yes. Whereas, <laughs> whereas I think with yours, obviously in a very different genre as well. But but with yours, you kind of find out organically through the plot uh, what this island, this archipelago in the Caribbean is like. Um, and I loved being able to walk around it with the two main characters as well and kind of discover bits of it. Um, you told me something fascinating just before we started recording about the name. Mm. Yes. So this archipelago made up of, I think, in my mind, five primary islands um, is called Poppy Show, P-O-P-I-S-H-O. Um, and the entomology of, of this name is... Um, uh, the origin of the name is, uh, it means a foolishness. It's Jamaican patwa, um, and Jamaicans all over the world will be laughing their heads off at my temerity. Um, because, of course, it's a, another one of those words that's, words that's, you know, hard to translate. But it means a foolishness, a silliness. It also, in some instances, means that a man is being cheated on, being cuckolded. Um, so a man can be made a poppy show of. And as far as I know, its root is in the 18th century and the original British puppet shows. And so the idea that we have a foolishness kind of, you know, um, Punch and Judy kinds of ideas, but, but someone else might know better than I. Um, yeah, and I suppose an, an additional element here that I find amusing, and perhaps you will as well, is that there was a point at which I wanted to walk around a small archipelago to see whether it could be done, which I know is ridiculous because I should just be able to decide it's can, it can be done, right? Because I'm <laughs> making up this world. But I'm kind of this literal perfectionist control freak. So I couldn't at the time that I was doing this, Anna, afford to go back to where I wanted to, which was actually I wanted to go back to Grenada and go to small islands around Grenada that I had known when I was a child because we lived there for a while. Um, that wasn't possible. I didn't have the money. So I thought, is there an archipelago anywhere around here. And they said, oh, Isles of Scilly. Now, the Isles of Scilly, of course, is S-C-I-L-L-Y. But I love that it could be S-I-L-L-Y because 
of course, Isles of Silly Poppy Show, same idea. So I decided that this was all meant to be. And off I went to the Isles of Silly. I think I went three times, actually. And I walked around several of the islands, pretending to be Anise and Xavier. And so I have a real visceral sense of what the walk's like, because I've, I've kind of done it. I think as well, when you imagine a walk, you can. It, it's very easily to skip large distances if you're used to travelling by car or by bike or what have you. So I think only by doing... I can see where you did. Doing the walking gives you a sense of, like, the physicality of the time. Yeah, I'm really glad I did it. I'm really glad because it, it so helped the writing and it so helped the pacing. And, uh, again, this weird literal sense of can this be done? Of course it can be. But, but yes, it is possible to walk around certain islands of the Isles of Scilly in the time frame that I needed. I mean, I was going to kind of bullshit if it didn't work with timing and go, well, it's puppy show. Strange things happen here anyway. But I didn't have to. I've done the timing. <laughs> I know that what they do is possible to do in, in the 24-hour period. Now, um, I think also this book is also what I would call an eating book, meaning uh, it's one that I snack through constantly. <laughs> Fortunately, with the setting, it was uh, relatively healthy and I ate quite a lot of fruit while I was reading it. And uh, but I did order a Jamaican takeaway at one point as well. Aww. I've got a, a deep inbuilt craving for jerk chicken along the what way. What a gorgeous idea that someone should deliberately eat their way through the book. Mm. I found it impossible not to. Um, but I wanted to say to you, this, how, what's the role of food in it for you? Because obviously one of the central characters is a chef with these magical abilities as well. I mean, there's something, I think chefs have taken on a kind of certain, quite robust magical um, feeling over the last you know 10 15 years you have lots of celebrity chefs now and there's a point where we didn't it's like they've become the new kind of sexy thing um there's a kind of all kinds of ideas associated with masculinity and efficiency and moving your body in a particular way in uh in in the kitchen that that i became fascinated with i wanted to understand why these men and women move the way that they did that and i'd hear i mean i spent a lot of time watching cookery shows and reading biographies of and autobiographies excuse me of of of, of chefs um and they're an opinionated mad little lot so i think i i started <laughs> i started with that you know i think they're they're quite they're, and they're terribly efficient and they're perfectionist and they make all of these you know sacrifices in their personal life and part of you thinks for god's sake man you're just cooking some food but but what good chefs also all have to seem seem to have in common and i and this is not true for me is that they're obsessed with food and cooking they you know they and they they usually have some kind of connection with childhood i mean that's terribly freudian but nevertheless true um, you know, someone nurtured them with food or, or treated treated food badly in their past. And so they're kind of trying to rectify that. And so all of these fascinating patterns about chefs, I think, was the first thing. As for the food, um, well, now, I have a complex personal relationship with food. Um, I have many decades of an eating disorder background. And so uh, if I'm really honest and, and, and slightly vulnerable, I also wrote the book to soothe myself and my own complex feelings about food. I don't like food. It frightens me um, for a whole variety of reasons that I won't go into and bore your, your listeners. But, but certainly given that, this was uh, an exercise in playing around with the other thing that I think kind of pushes against my, my complex issues around food, which is my tremendous sensuality i love touching things and i love listening to things i love textures and light you know 
So I thought, let's make friends with food by creating a book that's so full of it that I can't avoid it. Um, there are also bodies here as well, a whole variety of bodies that are different, but we might get onto that. That is also a way of me celebrating and kind of dealing with my own little wounds there. Um, and our protagonist is like that as well. He has kind of compulsive behaviours. So it all kind of ties in, but perhaps we'll, we'll go back to that. But I am aware that for most people, because I don't want to just get this, this kind of negative downer, for most people, the feedback I'm getting is that it is, it is glorious to read, that it makes everybody hungry, that, that they, they like the sensuality of it. And I do think it's an excellent metaphor for connection. There's no question of that. Xavier is not always good with people. But man, he can give you what you need, you know. I think that's true. Um, I, th I think it's quite interesting, uh, your description of sensuality as well, because it is a book that is full of light and colour as well. There were so many different, so many different colours in it, um, which sounds a little trite when you say it like that, <laughs> but uh, you do sort of start to see the rainbow. Um, you mentioned Zaria's addiction uh, which is actually to eating moths, um, which makes sense in the world of the book because butterflies are kind of treated as a sort of an after-dinner drink almost, yes. uh, yes. whereas a moth is something more equivalent to harder drugs. Um, I was going to ask you off the bait at the back of that, I love magical realism, but I also think that the author always has a reason for including magic. Um, and the moths and the butterflies are just one aspect of it because actually everyone on the island has something slightly magical about them so that it makes it every day. You've kind of like circled around magic realism and come back to the other side. Um, but I wondered what the, why the magic element was important for you. Um, I think also, I think one of the things to think about is because this book was written over such a long period of time, I wrote it through my very early 30s, through my 40s, into my now early 50s, which is is a kind of fashion, fascinating, both technically, you know, you hopefully you get better, but also emotionally, you know, lots of things are going on. Um, I think certainly I'd written first, my first novel is very realist, you know, very you know, flexing my, my feminist shops. Uh, All the Blood is Red is a, is a book about a woman who gets, who gets raped. It is, it is an answer to the then in the 90s case of um, uh, Desiree Washington and Mike Tyson. Um, it is about the black community very explicitly, and it's very realist. Um, it's also about female friendship. And the, the second novel, too, uh, I began to move closer to the things I wanted to do in Orange Laughter. A Man Lives Under a Subway Tunnel is going mad and is being haunted by a ghost from his past, literally. Um, so I was already beginning to shift into, away from realism, into surrealism, into horror, into oddness, into magic realism. It took me a little while. I think I felt as if, you know, I was, I was brought up in a very politicized family and I'm not blaming this on them at all. I think I just thought, you know, as a black woman, there were things that had to be said, you know. And I still think as a black woman, there are things that must be said. But I think I began very quickly, thank God, to realize that you, but you can also have fun. And what can we, and, and, and that before I became conscious of all of the reasons why I feel my identity as a black woman is important or my identity as a fat woman is important, uh, became conscious of these systemic challenges these historical realities, I was a writer first, you know, 
I was a little girl lying in the back of a garden on my tummy going, this is fun, you know, reading James and the Giant Peach, uh, which is a book that still stays with me, um, and, and fantasizing Alice in Wonderland, that, that magical moment, you know, when she goes down that rabbit hole, man, and we narratively, but also psychologically shift and the author goes, shift, baby, just hold your breath and ah, jump, go, you know. And I began to realize it's that that I love. And magic realism, because it is the, the magic invades the reality, what we have here in some ways is an indulgence, no, of my own. I keep taking you down a rabbit hole over and over again, sometimes twice in a sentence, because it's tremendous fun. It also allowed me, I suppose, finally to make a serious, of course, serious points because magic realism is a political literary form as much as anything else. It amplifies emotions, but also amplifies injustice. So, as you said, everybody in Poppy Show has a little something, something. But what you have then affects what you do as a job, affects the amount of money that you have, affects your place in society. And if you try to fight against it, someone's going to say to you, well, you know, you were born fast, you can run fast, and so now you have to be a message boy. And that's a really hard and difficult thing to fight against because they also believe that magic comes to them via the gods, so it's preordained. And so I suppose I'm trying to make satirical points about how we arrange our societies and what we what that costs us how we put ourselves into boxes i think that's very interesting especially actually as you mentioned someone who is very fast uh who actually becomes the corrupt governor who is slightly looked down on and feels he needs to compensate for this kind of magical ability of extreme speed because it's seen as something that should belong to a delivery boy Yes, exactly. He's gone above his station. How dare he? And yet here he is, the governor. And yes, he is extremely resentful and hopefully humanised by, by this reality, even though he's a total bastard capitalist who's trying to take over the, the country. And really, Poppy Show is being threatened with capitalism. Um, there are magic toys and he's selling them <laughs> to the outside world. By the way, to my mind, this is not in the Caribbean. To my mind, it's somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. My apologies, sorry. No, 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 so. don't worry, but it's all Caribbean, Caribbean-esque, and so that makes perfect sense. But but only it's only in the Pacific in that I quite like the idea that it really exists, and I'm really attracted to the idea that, um, you know, all of these unknown communities that are protected and we can't get in, we don't know what's going on with them, and um, has always fascinated me. And so Poppy Show is my own personal little place that's getting on with its stuff, but nobody knows. And one of the things that we really want to know about is your favourite bookshop. Um, so always the classic of the podcast. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. So I've chosen, uh, it's certainly not the only bookstore uh, by any means that I love, but but it's certainly one that is, is, is important to me. And that's kind of my local. And it's the Word Bookshop. And this is 314 New Cross Road in southeast London, nearest Tube, if we ever get on Tubes again, is New Cross. And I, I love this, this, um, this bookstore, The Word. It's this small and mighty community space. And it serves primarily nearby Goldsmiths Uni. Um, 
and and they lia- they, they liaise with the union auditor service uh, uh, specifically. But it makes me feel very affectionate. You know that thing when you're an undergrad and you go into a bookstore and the bookstore, you know, all of your module uh, reading lists are there and you try to make up your mind what you want and you don't have lots of money. And so you try to negotiate with everyone else, you know, what will be bought and what books you can share um, they have a student loyalty scheme and a secondhand book reselling service, and it's 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 this kind of generosity that that, that is that is um, uh, that's kind of present that I appreciate in that context. Um, it's been operating an order and collect service since lockdown. Um, it's proprietor, who's a man called David Brett, gets involved with things like the Goldsmiths Fiction Prize. Um, and it's heavy on cultural studies and fiction and graphic novels. And it's got lots of graphic novels, actually, and poetry. And I went and checked it out again the other day because, of course, I haven't been for about a year because of lockdown. But I wandered up the road and looked at the uh, looked on the outsides and seeing what was in the, um, the window and stuff. And I just felt comforted and happy again walking up to it. There were, you know, women's rights books along one end. And then there was the latest issue, Grow. And then there were black books for kids next to kind of Bernadine Evaristo's Black Britain writing back Penguin series, which is, you know, this these six rediscovered works that she's she's um, promoting, you know, including the excellent Judith Bryan's um, Bernard and the Cloth Monkey. But then Dilly Lowe is sitting there as well. And Ali Smith, both the Obamas looking proudful, you know, with Michelle on top of um, Barack. Um, so I could see, you can see immediately from their window, like any bookstore's window, of course, you can see the decisions that are being made. These are very political and social and loving ones, I find. So I'm really fond of the word bookshop. And in normal non-pandemic circumstances, we would have purchased every single one of your choices from the word. But uh, sadly, we're going to have to just pretend for now. But uh, I look forward to visiting that part of South London when I can. (laughs) Good place to be and um, a lovely place, the word bookshop. Uh, One of your first book choices, which is the book you recommend to everybody. You've chosen Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, which I also love as well. Um, I'm so happy uh, it's, it's a fantastic book, um, but that's set within largely, at least half of it is set within the world of a travelling carnival, um, and uh, which in itself is also a very complete world as well. What is it you love about Geek Love? It's, oh, it's just so unapologetic. I mean, it's 25 years old now, I think, um, but Catherine Dunn is so fiercely courageous. She's just this female writer in like full blast trust of her themes and her powers as a writer. I actually think, you know, we could argue, uh, we, you and I could probably have a, a, a an interesting conversation about its structure. And I think perhaps the, there's some flaws going on there. You know, personally, I find the freak show and the kind of sibling dynamic more interesting than the sections about Miranda, who is our protagonist. Our protagonist is Olympia Binyuski. And the story is told from her point of view, but she's had a child um, and, and, um, called Miranda and there's a whole kind of a section of the book devoted to that our sections but but I'm in love with its bizarre kind of loping excess like I love that this woman if she's ever given a fuck I can't see it in the book and so I I just want to (laughs) hug her and this this book came across my it came to my attention again a very long time ago maybe as many as 20 years ago I think um an editor at at Farrah Strauss and Jerome might have just handed it to me and said you will love this book it will give you permission, you know. 
And so I, I love it for that. I, I also think it's discussion of, of the body and uh, of disability really spits in the face of sentimentality and kind of saccharine oversimplicity that can be associated with, with disability and with the body supposedly going wrong. You know, it's kind of this utter peace take of the idea of, of the body as well as a commercialized vessel. You know, the parents of the Benewski clan, as you know, have deliberately engineered their kids' different bodies to make money out of them. You know, their their bodies are being capitalized and bought and sold, and that's how they, they keep, you know, life and soul together. So I think that's, you know, fascinating as well. And, and so uh, I don't want to use the word brave. It's simplistic, but, but it'll do for the moment. Um I, I also think like the reigns of Dunn as well now live in the pages and spirit of another novelist and uh, a writer I love, um, Irena Sinakoji, who is the only person I've come across. Um, her, her work includes short story collections, Speech, Gigantula and Nudibranch. And um, Irena has this kind of surrealism, but also this utter bizarre courage with narrative and with ideas that, that I think she's taken the baton from done and run with it. I love that kind of writer. And I love that they're both women and I hope to be half as brave. I actually, I could see when you, when I read your list of recommendations, I was like, I, I could absolutely see a lineage between uh, you and Catherine Dunn in terms mm. of kind of uh, the speaking about bodies and uh, the idea that a world can have its own set of rules that there are a lot of kind of, uh, similarities. I could see why it was a book you would enjoy. Mm, mm. Yeah, thank you. That that means I've I've somehow done my job of being authentic on the page, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then there's another one, uh, which is another another long term favourite of mine uh, since I was a child, actually. So I'm quite pleased you know, we're on the same page, quite literally, for a few of these. Uh, but you say people are surprised that you love this one, which is Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals. Now I'm sort of surprise you say it's a surprise because it is such a kind of a book that so many people have affection for it's been adapted countless times um you know trying to explain it my boyfriend is greek and i was trying to explain to him the kind of fixation <laughs> that both the Doral siblings have in our culture uh why why the surprise i think that's just you know in a way the perhaps the explanation for that is quite simple uh uh, not a lot of people will know, but but I was born in Britain. I was born in England, in Coventry specifically. But when I was six, I went to Jamaica, and that's where I grew up. And absolutely, Durrell is not part of Jamaican culture. <laughs> the cultural reference is not there. And so I had this very interesting experience of being brought up in a household by a mother who, even though my mother was born in Jamaica and is, is, is you know, technically Jamaican, she had grown up in England. And so a lot of her cultural reference points were British. And so off we went to Jamaica, um, her with her actually very British self and me with my increasingly you know, Jamaican self as I grew up through that because of course where you spend your childhood has such a great effect on who you are and so I had lots of books in the house that lots of other Jamaican families didn't have I had lots of food in my house that Jamaican families didn't have um and so by that I mean I suppose I mean the Jamaicans are like huh my family and what and lots of people don't make the connection now of course lots of people do because you know those books were so huge and went across the world um but also i think people uh, the, the jamaicans aside jamaicans are now going to be ringing me and going we know about daryl what the hell is wrong with you but really my experience of childhood reading this book nobody knew what the hell i was reading other children were not reading it um but but also simply uh, a lot of people don't know how much i love animals and i wanted to be a vet when i was a child 
And this idea of, of um, Durrell scurrying around the Greek bushes, plucking out creatures and examining them. I also am obsessed with tiny things. Like I'll go off as a kid, I'd sit down and look at a rock for ages. Um, also, I'd be lost in, in books as well, of course. But I completely related as a child to Gerald Durrell. I think a lot of people did. Um, I had absolutely zero ability with the sciences, so I did not become a vet. Um, uh, but also I think I appreciate the the humour of this book. It's just so funny. Oh, my God, it's just hilarious. It still makes me laugh. Looking looking at it again over, you know, again, I haven't looked at it for about 10 years for this podcast. I thought, oh, is it going to hold up to my 51-year-old eyes? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, baby, it really does. I mean, you know, there's colonialism, <laughs> of course. But I think I saw that when I was a teenager. Um, but it's still rip-roaringly hilarious. Yeah, I think, you know, I, can, I still love it, but I can reread it with an awareness that they were obviously of a certain class and a certain oh, yes, type darling. of person. Yes, indeed, to be... indeed, indeed. Expats, expats all the way, you know. Uh, yes, there's no question of that. But I think in, in a strange way, you know, Durrell, we could get into a long... I don't think we should get into a long discussion about that because I do think it's complex and it deserves its own space. But certainly on rereading, the primary thing that comes across to me is the love between the family, the eccentricity of the family. And this, this little boy, he was 10, who, yes, of course, he's amplifying and exaggerating to write the memoir, but, but ultimately he was being allowed to be free, to wander, to imagine, to find out who he was. He's surrounded by people both telling him that he was crazy, <laughs> but also supporting him, you know. Theo, I'm in love with Theo still, oh, which is who his kind of his mentor, you know. Um, the idea of having someone who sees you so profoundly. And Theo saw Durrell, you know, when he was a kid. Oh, that's certainly the way it's written. Um, so I'm very attracted to a, a period. I think every kid should have a period of time in which they're free and seen and loved and they find out who they are. And, of course, most of us don't. Huh. Um, in many ways, yes. I have, you know, very creative and um, very loving family who always thought, I think one of the biggest gifts that my family gave me and my childhood gave me was I had young arty-farty parents who were like, oh, you want to be a writer? Cool. No one ever told me that I had to get a real job. Now I have a certain conservatism and paranoia about money and security, so I've had real jobs. <laughs> but no one told me I had to, you know, and I think it's a tremendous gift. Um, and yes, lots of wandering around Jamaica and wandering around in and uh, living in water like a little water creature and being allowed to do so. Oh, that sounds wonderful, actually, particularly at the moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, mm, yes. Uh, staying with the Caribbean, you've recommended a cookbook, which is Taste of the Caribbean by Rosamund Grant. <laughs> okay, so a small anecdote here, which is simply this. Um, <clears throat> so I decided at a point when I was a teenager that I would not learn how to cook on feminist principle. So oh, that I nobody did this would, and then yeah, recount oh, yeah. it. <laughs> oh, well, I know, it's such bollocks. Um, <clears throat> and, and, so, and again, now in Jamaica, I, when I started dating, there are a certain amount of boys who would be like, uh, so Jamaican parlance, where my Sunday soup there? In other words, where, what's happening with the weekend cooking? And I was gloriously happy to, you know, tell every single one of them that, ah, oh, no, yeah, I don't cook. Uh, because again, I'm quite literal in my own ways. Like, if I don't cook, then they can't make me. Um, <laughs> and Anise in the book is a terrible cook as well. Yes, exactly. She? She's terrible. Yes. Yeah, she's actually, I, I'm a better cook than Anise, Jesus Christ. Anise has no ability, which is ironic since she loves a chef. But as he says to her, as Xavier says to her, <laughs> all you have to do is know how to eat. You know, it's fine. Um, <laughs> don't do things you don't love, you know, even though he is slightly taken aback at the fact that literally the woman cannot boil water. It's like, what is wrong with you? Um, anyway. So I couldn't cook, um, but it, was, it, it wasn't that I had no ability at all, I think. I just didn't want to um, and could also get away with this uh, because in Jamaica, lots of middle-class homes have what are called helpers. They have cooks and so on, uh, which I know is something that freaks British people out. But stay with me, people stay with me. Part of this is colonialism. Um, and so I didn't have to cook. And then I moved to England, I think it was 1990, moved back as an adult after to do my master's degree and suddenly thought, oh, I can't cook. <laughs> so I had to learn. And it's the taste of the Caribbean eventually came along, not immediately, because I think it was published in 1995. I found it very, very helpful because actually, again, Jamaicans, I'm sorry, um, it, it's it's actually not just a Jamaican cookbook. It's a Caribbean cookbook. You know, she says Taste of the Caribbean. So there are lots of uh, Trinidadian and Bayesian references as well. Um, but I needed Rosamund Grant at that point because it's a real beginner's cookbook. 
and very efficient with it. So I'm very fond of its and still use its recipes today for um, roast chicken in particular. I do a very good roast chicken. I hate her recipe for macaroni and cheese, so I ignore it and do a much better macaroni and cheese. But she has coconut ice cream in it that's gorgeous and cakes that are wonderful and um, uh, lovely kind of um, stewed um, uh, beef that is gorgeous. So it's, it's, it's good for a beginner. Jamaicans who, as we say, have Han, which means they have this instinctive understanding of cooking, don't go look at Rosamond because she is for beginners. But I needed her when I got here. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, this kind of willful non-cooking. And I think my about turn was I decided that it was actually more of an independent thing to be able to nourish myself as well. I <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. Um, and I think that, you know, I will continue to call myself feminist, even though I prefer Alice Walker's womanist. Um, but I do think we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's like, you know, um, cooking is so much more culturally than, than simply, you know, women giving in to men. But, you know, we forgive ourselves. We were 16 when we made these decisions, right? Exactly. What is your best recipe? Oh, man. I'm not used to being asked questions on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I used to be a journalist, you see, dying to do it. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. I always do it. When I, whenever I interview other journalists, they can't stop asking questions. Mm. On the rare occasions people have interviewed me, I've been like, oh, but what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. My best recipe... Um, I make a very good uh, stew with saffron and new potatoes and fish, um, which I really love. That's my fave, mm. I think, okay, of things so, I yeah, make. I want that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spring one, so you have new potatoes and you cook yes. them in saffron. And, yeah, it's yellow. Oh, gorgeous. Everything's yellow. Yes, colour. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I'm really hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's 11.30 in the morning and suddenly I want potatoes, yellow one. <laughs> however we're going to move on <laughs> um you have chosen tony morrison's song of solomon now i'm interested in this because you won't know this but uh terry white who is the author we interviewed in the last episode of read like a writer also chose tony morrison's song of solomon and i can see why because it's an amazing book but what i'm really keen to find out is what is it for you personally for me it's the beginning of everything it's permission um, what I mean by that is that I came across Song of Solomon in particular, which is Toni Morrison's third novel, not, not her first, at university. And um, I suppose I'd gone through, you know, that it's that dull Alice in Wonderland kind of fantasy oddness as a kid. And then I was kind of on to Daniel Steele and Stephen King, <laughs> you know, that stage, and really liking horror fiction, actually. Um And then I got to university and was presented with three amazing courses that I did in my uh, first degree. I did a first degree in literature and social science. And one was um, uh, African-American, Harlem Renaissance in particular writers, people like Baldwin and Jean Tuma and Zora Neale Hurston and Ralph Ellison and Langston Hughes. I did another module in just straight up American writers. Uh, So, you know, Fitzgerald and Faulkner. And also the Latin Americans, so Marquez and, you know, Carlos Fuentes. And, oh, my God, you know, I I hate being so obvious, but that was the beginning of knowing, the beginning of knowing who I was. This introduction to magic realism, you know, 
um, magical events occurring in everyday life, you know, the supernatural invading and we just accepting it as it, as real, you know, the flower bulbs trying to choke Milkman's mother in, in Song of Solomon, you know, that growing stain in the middle of the dining table that seems to be growing every time, you know, Ruth looks at it. Um, and actually that, that lovely first sentence which got me, you know, the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Agent promised to fly from mercy to the other side of Lake Superior at three o'clock. And I tell you what it was for me. And I went, oh, you could do that. You can do that as an adult. It felt mm. to me like the kind of playfulness that I read about as a child that I felt, again, no one told me, but I suppose I thought, you know, one leaves behind childlike things now. And I was reading Austen and I was reading Dickens. And, you know, because again, Caribbean, uh, well, I suppose literary um, classes at high school in Jamaica at that time were quite colonial as well, quite quite conservative. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Dickens, still love Dickens, you know, ball my head off for a Dickens. Um, but that's what I'd done so far. It had been quite staid Caribbean literature and, uh, and, and, and being, um, I suppose, uh, lost in, the, in, in British classics. And then along came the Americans and along came the Latin Americans. And I went, oh, fuck everything else. This is so <laughs> astonishing. Right. And, and it made sense. And it's, you know, it's this thing that is told about Marquez again and again, that he says that he found his voice when he realized that it was the voice of his grandmother, his grandmother who would, you know, have breakfast with his dead aunt and then come in and tell him about it like it was nothing. And nobody hauled his grandmother off and said that she was mad or that she had any kind of psychological problems. It was perfectly accepted. And nobody kind of went, oh, yes, here we go again, granny. You know, it was perfectly accepted that breakfast had been had with the spirit of, 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 of auntie that morning and that that meant something, how important it was. And actually, I remember just as a sidebar, but it is relevant to this, teaching a course in magic realism writing um, at British Museum, actually and meeting a lot of people from different spaces and really realizing at that point that we all have magic realism in our background. Of course, it's not just a Caribbean thing. Um, a, a young Irish man telling me that his great grandfather told him about how they used to go out and, and, and kill rabbits and bring them home. But that the great grandfather absolutely remembers sitting in the kitchen and watching a rabbit get up out of the pot, put its, put its skin back on and run off. And now, of course, these, these things are wonderful metaphors for power and control and structure and so on. But and maybe for the child's you know, fright that day that these, these corpses, these rabbits were sitting in the middle of the, you know, imagining that one of them would get up and run away and be free. But, uh, but this idea in me as well as a Jamaican person, yes, of course, I am a, a rational, science-loving human being. But part of me, you know, still believes, yeah, the rabbit got up and ran away. You know, and, and, and the ghost was met this morning. So to go back to Morrison, she gave me total permission to be Caribbean, actually, to talk of that sensibility. And then, of course, Marquez coming on on the back end and the Latin Americans. I just went, oh, so I just bathed in it in undergraduate level. I mean, I could go more into this book, but, but ultimately that that's what it meant to me personally. I could probably continue this conversation with you for a good couple of hours over a glass of wine. But I am, uh, <laughs> yeah, I am aware of our time. <laughs> yeah. But um, we do love a lot of things in common, so yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we've spoken about the wonderful positive joy of food, uh, both in your own novel, in Rosamond Grant's cookbook. Um, 
but one one book that you think will save a life, and you have alluded to this in earlier in the conversation, is um, binge eating disorder, the journey to recovery. Um, can you explain a bit more about that for us? Yeah, I think this is an important one, and I, I, I want to talk about it. This book is a non-fiction guide to overcoming binge eating disorder, um, It's a, which is, I'll be very clear with this, that is a mental health condition, and it's marked, a lot of people don't understand this, it's marked by disassociation. And of course, yes, eating large quantities of food, but an inability to stop that behavior and lots of distress. And it can become, this does, it doesn't mean that it has to become this, but it also can be associated with feelings of guilt and disgust and shame, body dysmorphia, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety. It's a complex one, this one. Um, this book is told in dual voices. Um, it's uh, both by a clinician, Amy Pershing. It's an American book um, who runs a BED program and is clinical director for the Center of Eating Disorders, I think, in Michigan. And Chavise Turner, who's an activist and who founded the BED Association. She's also a lifelong sufferer of BED. And so the way that it's structured is that it goes between uh, Chavise's memories and um, Amy's clinical perspective on, on those experiences. But also there's a lot of practical advice about really how to live this life and I have a background of eating disorders. There is bulimia, there is uh, anorexic notes as well, which um, a lot of people, again, would find odd because I'm not a slim person, but anorexia does not mean slim. Anorexia means restriction of food and soothing as a result of that. Um, but it's mostly BED for me and has been. And this is such an in-depth and compassionate book. It told me so much about my own state of mind that I didn't know. I did not know how important disassociation was to understand this, this experience. Um, but also the book doesn't just talk about what it is, but it talks about how to live a life with it. It does not ask for perfection or cures or the end of a thing. Rather, it talks about the importance of presence in a moment. Um, and very strongly, the idea of the body as a home, not as a... Uh, you know, the commercial use that we talk about in geek love or um, or even the joy that people feel about food and the interest and enthusiasm they have in this one sky day. Um, but the importance of recognizing that the body is somewhere that you live your entire life and that you should um, care for it. There's a, there's, a, there's a section, deliberate section in this one sky day in which Saviour is teaching people how to eat and he gets them to slow down. And Anise is going, gets slightly distracted by this because she begins to, she slows down so much, she kind of can feel the food almost rolling down her throat and she begins to realise there are foods that she thinks that she likes, but actually, excuse me, when she slows down, she doesn't like them at all. And, um, it's aubergine, and it takes concentration. It? Yes, it's aubergine. aubergine. She realises she hates aubergine. My, that'll annoy my best friend because my best friend loves aubergine and I hate aubergine. So, you know, there's a total agenda there going on. Um, but, I love these little nuggets <laughs> that we find out in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, yes, aubergine hating. Um, but, yes, so so I have included, and, and hopefully not with a heavy hand, but I have included the things I have learned about how to survive with this disorder over time in this book um i also just want to shout out to another book that i think is tremendously important which is by dr sabrina strings which is fearing the black body it talks about the history and the racial origins of fat phobia which is another really great book 
um, I, in conscience, Anna, I can't talk about food and not say that I have not been frightened of it and complicated about it all my life because it would be such a lie. Again, this book, this One Sky Day, is an opportunity to redress some of my pain through Xavier, but also um, I really want anyone who who struggles with um, soothing themselves with food in ways that cause them distress, read this book. It will shift you. That's what I think. Yeah, I think, um, thank you for sharing that as well. Um, I think the other thing that you've also done with this One Sky Day is include kind of descriptions of bodies that are infinite and also beautiful like mm-hmm. the, the, there are very many different types from someone who has a long neck and, and a shock of blonde hair like a sunflower to like you know a perfectly large round bum mm-hmm. <laughs> Anissa's the... backside is a thing of beauty yes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but the variety of it even in the beauty contest towards the end you know the mm-hmm. variety of bodies on show and what makes them beautiful um, it's a beauty contest like no other I've I've read about, really. Mm. Uh, yes, all deliberate, all self-healing, all utterly self-indulgent, and all but hoping that people will join me there. I am as I get older, Anna. It it continue. It begins really to. I mean, this is a very Western thing in its way, but it's not that these things are not true in the Caribbean. Caribbean is, you know, the research shows us that there's plenty of eating disorders and body dysmorphia in the Caribbean too, even though I think, I say that because I think a lot of people are quick to say, oh, you know, the Caribbean is a place where we, we you know, we embrace our sensuality and we love our big backsides. No, I don't know that that's the whole story. But um, my increasing impatience is with this idea that we must look a particular way. This is absolute rubbish. We have to stop it. It really is hurting young women in particular and young men increasingly. We are, you know, we, genetics plays a huge role in our sizes and our shapes. Um, society is complex about its receipt of bodies that don't look a certain way, that are not slender, that are not white, uh, that are not, you know, you know those perky breasts? I don't know whether you have perky breasts, Anna, but I spent most of my teenage years looking at people who were perky-breasted going, oh, okay, I wish. Now, actually, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the perky-breasted. Big up the perky-breasted. If that's how you came here, that's cool too. But my breasts started dipping when I was 15, and that's also true. And it doesn't mean that there was something wrong with me and something right with the perky-breasted. It just means there are loads of breasts around, and they're all good. And what are we doing to take care of them? So I could rant, as you can tell, on this for a long time. But that was one of the few deliberate rather than instinctive things about this book. Mm. I thought, let me love me up some varied bodies all over it on purpose so you can see it. Yeah, that's on purpose. I I loved that as a reader as well. I think uh, it it made me feel quite celebratory. Um, Good. I'm glad. And as again, I said, I think it's really important to say that this is not then a space in which, for example, fat bodies then overtake thin bodies. It really is saying, you know, regardless of my weight over the years, my dear, I was always going to have large breasts, a thick waist and small hips. That's how my family is. (laughs) That's what we look like. Right. So no amount of attempting to shift that was ever going to make me whatever that stupid commercial ideal is. Uh, which was really created for men to hang clothes on women as if they are hangers. Um, 
So, yes, I think it's all rubbish. And if I've made any contribution at all to women feeling a bit better about their bodies, but also men, a lot of men love women's bodies exactly as they are. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a thing which I could talk about all day as well. Uh, but instead, you're going to tell us about um, a new book that's coming out soon, uh, which is Things I Have Withheld by Kai Miller, which is a collection mm, of mm. essays. And Kai Miller normally writes a, a poetry and novels, but this is an essay collection. What is it that you, what is it to what attracts ah, you? This man, this man, Kai Miller, Things I Have Withheld. Now, this is a book that I've only skimmed through because it's, it's, it's in the category that you guys gave me of upcoming that you're keen to read. So I, so I haven't read the whole thing. I've read a couple of the essays. Um, now, Kai Miller for me is simply, I say this carefully, the best living Caribbean writer at present working. Um, although poet Shivani Ramlakan, Trinidadian, is, is giving him a run for his money. But for me, it's Kai. You know, as you said, short stories, poetry, novelist, his last novel, August Town, was this astonishing love letter, like all his work, to the beauty of Jamaican vernacular. He loves our language, but he particularly loves, again, the body and the ways that black bodies walk through this world. Um, I'm looking forward to this because he, he says at the beginning, he says this series of essays emerge from a habit of silence, he says. And there's a quote that I quite like. He says, the moments when I am most in need of words are exactly the moments when I lose faith in them and when I fall back into silence. And all of these essays are a response to his feeling he's lived a life in which he's, he's gone silent when he should have spoken up. And so it's a, it's a personal journey for him to say certain things out loud. I think we should say things out loud. Um, I, as far as I can see from the book, we have all kinds of themes. We have violence. We have um, Jamaica again and again. We have the body. We have street boys. We have racism. We have the Caribbean carnival, all kinds of things going on. Um, one of the essays is called The Old Black Woman Who Sat in a Corner. You know, another one's called The Absence of Poets and Poodles. So he's he's gone all over the place, but I'm looking forward to it. Apart from anything else, because he's such a wordsmith, because I also think um, maybe this is something I've made up, but I see this shift, Anna, that's interesting to me. Um, this movement that I see in the last couple of years of men of colour, of writers of colour who are men, speaking their vulnerability. Uh, last, I think, year before last, I watched uh, Forward Prize winner um, Roger Robinson move to tears speaking of the effects of racism on, on his body and his spirit and um, listened to recently to Musa Okwanga who's written, um, the, in the end, it was all about love, and Nikesh Shukla, who's recently has a memoir, Brown Baby, talking about the tremendous importance, this kind of revolutionary necessity of tenderness and, and, and joy in art and life and how healing that will be and continues to be for black men or men of colour in particular. So these three men and their writing, Akwanga, Roger Robinson, Nikesh Shukla, and um, so four of them, and um, uh, Kai Miller, they're giving me life right now because they're taking such risks, such emotional risks. And they're trying, I think, to shift through what, what, you know, what mannishness is supposed to be. And I love them for it. And I love um, Kai Miller in particular. And I, that's why I'm looking forward to things I've withheld. You've made me look forward to it now as well. <laughs> um, and you also wanted to talk about a, a new title that you have read, which is Diary of a Film by Nivan Govinda. 
Oh, wow. I have to get Jamaican on this one. Girl, mm, what a prettiness. He is so clever. Um, diary of a film. So it's, so it's a, it, it's protagonist is a director. He's been, he, he, I almost feel like I don't need to say this for Niven Gvindon because he's been getting such love letter reviews. It's like, you don't need any help boy, but I, I have to pick it up because I, I've read it recently. And also I loved it. Um, so it's, it's from the point of view of a director, a film director only called Maestro. And he arrives in an Italian city to a film fest that's unveiling his latest film. And, um, he has a chance encounter with a woman called Cosima who leads him to reading the novel she wrote as a young woman after the death of her graffiti artist boyfriend. And the maestro becomes consumed with Cosima and the idea of adapting her work. That, that in, in, in a nutshell, I suppose, is, is it. And I started crying almost immediately as, as when I began reading this, this wonderful book. And it's very small as well, um, about 250 words, I think, uh, pages. Um, you see, the maestro is waiting for his work to be received. He's waiting for it to be judged. He's waiting to see if he's understood. And I am exactly in that liminal space right now, waiting to see what people think of this one sky day, waiting to see if I wasted 15 years of my life writing it. I don't think I have. And in the end, you have to write for yourself. But this work, Diary of a Film, is it says so many beautiful things about what art is and what it is to create and what you sacrifice and what other people sacrifice for you while you're doing it and how you absolutely turn yourself inside out quite quietly every single time you do it and you remake yourself as well as the work. And I think also I'm totally obsessed with Govindan's commitment as a writer to seriousness. It doesn't mean that the book is not, you know, doesn't have, have, have humor, gentle humor is present, but this is so tender as a work, so open. It's so crystal clear. It's like he's taking, I feel like I take these sticky, dirty emotions, go, here it goes, look, 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 and kind of jump around and have fun with them a bit. He, it's like he takes those layers of emotional complexity and he just washes them in cold, clear water. And he just, he's, I adore his clarity. As I said, doesn't mean there isn't warmth and tenderness. There's plenty of that. Um, everyone should read this book. It's a very masculine book in its way. It's like it's so sure. Like I, I need to take Niven, Niven out for, for a drink or something and say, really? You, so you're really sure? Like, are you just bullshitting? <laughs> right? um, I love it. I think it's a really important book. And um, I, I don't know that it's everybody's cup of tea. Perhaps some people do not want to read about what, you know, the machinations of, of, of the psychology of the artist, but I wept through it, not least because I understand how frightened the maestro is and how, and yet how committed he is to, to, to the work of art he's created recently. And, and what will be next as well? Who owns art? It's got all kinds of delicious ideas. Um, yeah, love that. Love that novel. Well, that's great. I want to thank you for your time, for your commitment to writing the novel and, uh, ally the fears that uh, <laughs> I think the reception is going to be great well you um, liked it I loved it <laughs> yeah. so this one Sky Day is published by Faber and Faber and is out next week and now just before we go we can hear Leonie reading an extract from the book itself on the first anniversary of his wife's death Xavier Redshoes got up before light and went downstairs to salt the cod he sat in his kitchen, green notebook in hand, rubbing his left thumb along the stained pages, waiting for delivery. 
Through the restaurant window, he could see the golden stalk of a fading moon. Around him, the torn poem was silent, except for the morning wind, making the front doors shiver. It was going to be a trying day, of that he was sure. The local fisherman arrived promptly, his adolescent son trailing behind him, father genuflecting, son's eyes downcast and fixed on the backs of their silver-blue catch. It was this same boy who'd found Xavier's wife floating in the sea, limbs tentacled and carried her corpse onto the beach. He said Nia's dead voice sounded like rotting pineapple, sweet and grating as she tapped his chest. You can put me down now, boy, she said. It gone bad already. The fisherman's son watched her walk down the sand until he couldn't see her any more. Why never hold her there, snapped Xavier. Call for me, something. I never know how, the boy whined. Tet me two day to get him up here to tell you, Messinas, the father said. Damn fool, go hide in a bush. When people died alone, without proper burial rites, the carcass wandered for years, rudderless, rotting and shrinking. They had all seen these ghosts, rebuilding their bodies with bits of rubbish, hanging on half-maddened. People who died alone, heart attack, stroke, old age, sleep and dream and dead, fall and lick your head on a rock, poverty, murder, suicide, drowning, people whispered behind their hands, all of them dead are the same thing, you know, loneliness. It hurt Xavier to think of his fierce wife so. Xavier paid for the fish, two thick bellies and a sack of velvety cod livers, and watched the youth's trembling mouth as he hoisted it onto the kitchen table. He didn't forgive the boy. How hard was it to restrain a dead woman when so much was at stake? Blessings, Messinas, said the fisherman. He patted the cod. What good today, you hear? Xavier nodded. He leaned against the kitchen door, listening to them make their way back through his cliff-top garden, imagining every plant they passed, his pearly bougainvillea, the night-blooming cereus climbing up the mango tree, his pawpaws and twin almond trees, his hot pepper pumpkins and white roses. He liked flowering plants between the herbs. They attracted the right kind of insect. Down the sheer steps they went, calling softly to each other, Mine, how you go? He liked the fisherman's voice. It reminded him of being young. Before you got so very speaky-spoky, Messinas, his brother Io liked to say, grinning all over his face. Xavier sucked his teeth. He wasn't too fancy, whatever his elder brother said. He still knew how to curse a man in the language of their ancestors. Xavier rubbed his palm heel across his jaw. His beard needed trimming. Cheatsy, Io's seven-year-old daughter, would be in here soon, demanding breakfast from him. She was an early riser, too. In the months just after Nia died, Cheatsy was the only person who dared come to his room without invitation, jumping into his hammock and swinging her legs. She told him he looked far too tall, and why didn't he do something about it? And when the room smelled, oh, so bad, she'd stretched her arm to open the window and turned his face towards the sunshine. You going out today, uncle? Not today, Cheatsy. 
She pulled his nose until he gave in and tossed her, giggling into the air. Don't drop me, Uncle Speaky Spokey. Xavier took a deep breath and stepped out into his yard. The dark garden poured out in front of him, and beyond that the islands of Poppy Show. The Torin poem was perfectly located on Battisant, right inside the capital, pretty town, but still private, on the cliff above the harbour. Up here he could see his diners snaking across the sand towards him, then away afterwards, a silvery line of nourished people, stretching back to the sea like foam. After he fed them, some swam, some danced. This One Sky Day is out on April the 15th in hardback ebook and audiobook published by Faber and Faber. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash Read Like a Writer. And we'd love to hear what you think too, so you can tweet us at Read Like a Pod. 